Let's pray together, shall we? Father, we thank you that tonight we stand on the rock who is Jesus Christ, our wonderful Lord and Saviour. And Father, the cry that comes from our lips is, we're forgiven. Father, we thank you that you've taken our past and you've blotted it out. And you've given us the past that Jesus has. And Father, more wonderful of all, you've given us the future that Jesus has. Father, we're so grateful to you tonight that you saw us in the miry clay and you came with your love and you pulled us out. Father, we couldn't help ourselves, but you set your love upon us and you've pulled us out. Father, I want to thank you that we are indeed a glorious people now because we're your people and you say that we are a chosen generation, we're a holy nation, we're a royal priesthood and we're a people who belong to our God. And Father, we know that Peter goes on to say that we should show forth the excellency of Christ. And Father, I just want to pray in Jesus' name that Father, through the things we study tonight and through the things we've studied in the last 20 sessions, that Father, we should indeed show forth his excellency. Father, we feel vexed about our society. We know that our society is going downhill and very fast. And yet, Father, we know that we have the goods. We've got the message. Father, I want to pray in Jesus' name, Lord, that we should be firm in our resolve yes. and that the message of Jesus Christ, the wonder of his love, may go forth loudly as a trumpet sound from the midst of us. Father, as we come tonight to celebrate the completion of your plan, the completion of your purposes, Father, I just pray that it should lead, lead us to bow the knee in the way that we've never done before. Thank you for your eternal purpose. Thank you that it's successful. And thank you that for all eternity we shall see Jesus face to face. Oh, Father, please just bless us tonight as we come to study these things together. In the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. We've been studying what the Bible calls the age to come, or in another place it calls the fullness of times, or what I call the eternal state. I call it the eternal state because it lasts forever and forever, and those of us who have eternal life are going to be there forever and forever. Last time we dealt with the most indescribable wonders. In Revelation 21, you remember, we saw a new earth, we saw a new heaven, and upon the new earth we saw a new Jerusalem which had come down from God who was its maker. And in that wonderful city will dwell all of redeemed creation. Angels will be there, Old Testament saints will be there, the church is going to be there, tribulational believers are going to be there, the Lord himself will be there, and God will be there as well. And we're going to live together forever and forever. And we saw this city which defied description, really. It was wonderful, completely transparent, with the Lord as its light, so there was no night there. We saw the gates, we saw the walls, we saw the foundations, we saw that every part of it was transparent and prismatic. In other words, it split up the light. We saw the colours, we saw the splendour, we saw the glory, we saw this wonderful place that gleamed and glimmered, you know, that sparkled before our eyes. And I must confess to you that when I dealt with it last time, I thought, Lord, can there be anything more wonderful than this? Fancy, we're going to spend eternity face to face with the Lord in those beautiful surroundings. It's going to be wonderful. When I studied these passages, at the end of Revelation 21, I thought, well, Lord, that has got to be the end of prophecy in the Bible. You can't get anything better than that. It must go out with a bang, and therefore it must go out with that note. And actually, I thought that the whole of Revelation 22 was just a sort of conclusion. John's way of saying, well, this is it, these things are faithful and true, and these things are absolutely right, and, uh, you know, nicely concluding the book. I couldn't believe there was anything more. And yet the odd thing is, when you read on into Revelation 22, you find there are just five more verses of prophecy. And when I first read them, I felt, I must confess, that they were a little anticlimactic. I didn't understand them when I first read them, and I thought, well, after the glories that we've seen, how come we now come on to the description of a, of a, of a street within the city? 
and of a river and of a tree. I thought, Lord, there has to be a purpose in that if you end on that note. And, in fact, the purpose is so wonderful, I want to spend the whole of this evening on it. Because, at the end of this evening, you will understand that actually prophecy in the Bible could not end in any other place but in the first five verses of Revelation chapter 22. Now, let's just read them through. So let's turn to Revelation chapter 22, and we're going to read the first five verses. Now, Revelation 22 is split in, uh, into two parts. Verse 1 to verse 5 are prophetic. Verse 6 to verse 21 are the signing off note. All right? There's no prophecy in those last chapters. Sorry, in the last verses of that chapter. So the five verses that really affect us, which are the end of prophecy, the last word of prophecy in the Bible, and therefore the climax of prophecy, as far as the Bible is concerned, are verse 1 to verse 5. Let me just read it through, and I'll make a few little comments as we go through. Having seen the glorious Jerusalem and all the spectacular colour and the, the glory that surrounds it, he then zooms in and we actually see a detail of the city. In verse 1 he says this, And he showed me, he of course is the angel who was directing him, he showed me a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding out of the throne of God, and of the Lamb. So there's a river flowing, a beautifully crystal clear river which is flowing in this city. And it comes, you notice, from under the throne of God, which reminds us of the millennium. If you read in Ezekiel 40 to 48, you'll find that the waters in the millennium flow from under the throne of God. Then verse 2, and this is a complicated verse and we'll be back to it. In the midst of the street of it, so we have one street that we're told about, which comes down, in the midst of the street of it, and on either side of the river, there was the tree of life. Now this is very difficult to imagine, but if you read that carefully, it's obvious that you have a street, and down the middle of the street, the river flows, and it says, on either side of the river is the tree of life. Now some people say, well, it's more than one tree. But, in fact, we find this hard to visualise. It may just be that it's the type of tree that spans the river. You know, you get trees like this in certain areas of the world, so that the tree actually spans the river and actually has its roots going down into the river. So you have a street here with a tree running right up the middle uh, of the street. And the marvellous thing is, of course, that this particular tree never dries up because it has its roots in the river, which flows from the throne of God, that is, it flows forever and forever. And that's what John sees in the middle of this street. And then we're told something about the, this tree of life, as it's called. Look what it says, which bear twelve manner of fruits. So it's got twelve different fruits. Now that really is some tree. You get the pomegranates in one season, you get the grapefruit in the next month, the, the oranges in the next one, the lemons, or whatever fruit they are, by the way, they're not really those fruit, um, but these are just examples. Every month sees a different fruit coming, and yielded her fruit every month. And then it says, and the leaves of the tree were for the healing, or the health, literally, of the nations. And we'll be back to that in a moment. Verse 3, and there shall be no more curse, but the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it, and his servants shall serve him, and they shall see his face, and his name shall be in their foreheads. Now, when you read a phrase like that, his, um, it says here, his name shall be in their foreheads. What it means is that all their thoughts will be of him. There won't be any other thought in existence. They'll not only see him face to face, they'll be totally captivated with everything concerning him. And then it says, verse 5, And there shall be no night there, and they shall need no candle, neither light of the sun. For the Lord God giveth them light, and they shall reign for ever and for ever. And with that, he ends the prophetic dialogue. These are the last five verses of prophecy found in the Bible. And notice how he goes on, verse 6, He said unto me, These things are faithful and true. In other words, don't you have any doubt about them? As I'm telling you them, 
That's how they're going to be, and that's how they are. And the Lord God of the holy prophets sent his angel to show unto his servants the things which must shortly be done. And by the way, when John received this, if it was short then, how much shorter is it now before we're going to see these things? The problem is, as you read these verses, that there's one major problem right in the middle of these verses. Now, when you come to a problem like this, don't ignore it. Very often it's problems like this that give you the key to the whole chapter or to the whole passage. And here you've got a problem because in verse 3 it is clearly stated, and there shall be no more curse. Now what is this curse? This curse refers to all that happened at the fall of man. Now when Satan fell and when Adam fell, the creation was subjected to futility. And as a result, this perfect creation which God had created was subjected to all manner of things. For example, disease began, decay began, all manner of sickness began, and death itself came upon the creation. And yet we're told here that in the eternal state there is no more curse. What's that mean? There's no more sickness, there's no more decay, there's no more illness, there's no more death. It's all absolutely perfect. No more being rushed into hospital. Nothing like that. Absolutely, absolute perfection on every side. Aha. Uh -huh. Well, that's no problem. The problem comes at the end of verse 2, where we read that this tree gives forth leaves, and it says, for the health of the nations. Now, that is a problem because, of course, why should it give forth leaves for the health of the nations if the nations aren't going to be sick anyway? It's quite a problem, isn't it? And yet it's that problem which broadens our vision so that we can understand why this is the only ending there could be to the Bible. It talks about a tree. And this is a wonderful tree. It's called the tree of life. And those of you who know your Bible know that this isn't the only place that the tree of life is mentioned. Do you remember that the Bible actually begins with the tree of life planted in the Garden of Eden. And so, as we're dealing with the end, perhaps it's a good thing to remember that God knows the end from the beginning and the beginning from the end, so perhaps we're going to find some light on this by going to the beginning of things, that is, by having a look at the whole concept of Eden and the Garden of Eden. Now, before you turn to Genesis and chapter 1 and 2, I want you to, to know this, that the Garden of Eden found in Genesis 1 and 2 is not the first Eden found in the Bible. Now, this is absolutely vital to understand. And so, let's turn to the first Eden that's found in the Bible, which, of course, is found in the book of Ezekiel. And let's turn together to the book of Ezekiel and chapter 28. This may give you a shock, but you'll understand why we're going there in just a moment. Ezekiel and chapter 28. And let's have a look at Eden. <clears throat> Ezekiel and chapter 28, where we have a chapter that deals with prophecies concerning Tyre and Sidon. Now in verse 2, verse 1 says, The word of the Lord came again unto me, saying, Son of man, say unto the prince of Tyrus. Tyrus was, of course, this Phoenician city that we call Tyre, and here the prophet has to speak against the prince of Tyre. Now, the prince of Tyre there actually refers to the man who was king of Tyre, the human occupant of the throne of Tyre. And a judgment is said against him, which is said in verse 2 to verse 10. That's not the passage we're going to deal with tonight. Then go on to verse 11, to a passage we've seen when we talked about Satan, in, I think, the second series of Bible studies, the basic series on judgments. And let's read from verse 11. Moreover, the word of the Lord came unto me, saying, Son of man, Take up a lamentation upon the king of Tyre. Now in verse 2 you've got the prince of Tyre. In verse, ele uh, in verse 12 here you have this person called the king of Tyre. 
And when you read on the, in the description that's given after verse 12, you come to a very strange conclusion. You come to the conclusion that this king of Tyre actually does not refer to a man, but refers to an angel. We'll go through it in just a moment and you'll see that. And what this passage is actually saying is this, that although men on this earth get preoccupied with their kings, most kings are directed from a higher source altogether. And we who are Bible believers and Bible scholars know this is so, that there are in fact angelic forces which are affecting history on the earth. And what this passage says is that the king of Tyre, the human king, is really a prince. But that he is being directed from above, from an angel or an angelic force above him who is the real king. He is the one that gives the orders. He is the one that gives the direction as far as Tyre is concerned. And this man who's sitting on the throne simply does what that angelic creature says that he ought to do. And actually, the king of Tyre referred to here is Satan himself. Don't forget that Tyre was one of the most evil places in the world. It was the very seat of Satan for a time. And here is Satan enthroned. This is his throne on the earth. Today, by the way, Satan has a place on the earth which is his throne. Right? He always has. And you look up the, in the Revelation, the, uh, in, in chapter 2 and chapter 3, where uh, John actually says, uh, I'm writing about the letters, you are where Satan's seat is. Satan's throne is in your area. Well, today, Satan's throne is somewhere. And I think, of course, it's in the west coast of America today. That's my personal belief at this moment. At this time, it was in the city of Tyre. Now look at the description. Take up a lamentation about the king of Tyre and say unto him, we've seen this before, let's go through it quickly. Thus saith the Lord God, thou sealest up the sum, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. In other words, you are the height of my creation. All that was beautiful I invested in you. You became the byword of perfection. And verse 13, there's an interesting reference. Thou hast been in Eden, the garden of God. There it is. We'll be back to it in, in a moment. Every precious stone was thy covering. The sardius, topaz, the diamond, the beryl, the onyx, the jasper, the sapphire, the emerald, the carbuncle, and gold. And the workmanship of thy tablets and thy pipes was prepared in thee in the day that thou was created. And here you see, this king of Tyre is said to be created. Not born, but created. And here it says, why? All of these precious stones were your garments. These were garments, of course, of a kingly person or of a high priest. So it's saying that this creature actually had authority. And notice what it said. When did he have these things? Why, it was in Eden. Now when the devil appears in the Garden of Eden in Genesis chapter 1 or Genesis chapter 2, he appears as a snake. It is not referring to that Garden of Eden. What we know here is that before the earth was created, there was an Eden in the heavenlies, which was all round the throne room of God, and it was where Satan himself lived and moved and had his being. So the first Eden is an angelic Eden, an angelic Eden, and Satan himself dwelt there. So the first Eden is angelic, or shall I call it heavenly? I'll call it heavenly. A heavenly Eden. And Satan, called Lucifer as he was there, actually dwelt in that garden. And then it says, by the way, the end of verse 13 refers to his voice. He had the most beautiful voice. You know, the, the beauty of his tablets, of his pipes, was fantastic. Now, verse 14, we see here that he was an, an angel. Thou art the anointed cherub. A cherub is an angel. And by the way, it's not a little fat baby. <laughs> Honestly, it isn't. They are magnificent. Um, they're normally shown, you know, little fat babies with a bow and arrow and a ribbon draped across certain parts. Really not true. The cherubs, or cherubim, as they're called, are magnificent angelic beings. And here he says, Satan, you were the anointed 
the chosen cherub, the one that I chose above everyone else, that covereth. In other words, you had a position of authority. And then it says, and I've set thee so. It was my purpose for you that you were so. Thou wast upon the holy mountain of God. That is where God's throne was. Thou hast walked up and down in the midst of the stones of fire. To walk up and down is a Hebrew idiom for having authority. Why? You had authority in the midst of the stones of fire. These may be angels, they may be literal stones of fire. He had authority in the presence of God. He was a chosen cherub. And then verse 15 is very important. Thou wast perfect in thy ways from the day that thou wast created. And that tells us something. That when Satan was created, he was sinless. He was sinless. But, look what happened. Till iniquity was found in thee. Now what does this phrase, iniquity found in thee, mean? It tells us this. That while Satan was created sinless, he, like us, had free will. And the thing about free will is this. It has a positive pole and it has a negative pole. Free will has the right to choose. And Satan had the right to choose for God or against God. And the fact that iniquity was found in him shows that the day came, and we've studied it, of course, together, the day came when Satan decided against God. He became negative. And as a result, he became sinful. So there is the position as far as Satan is concerned. He was in heavenly Eden. He was sinless when created, but with free will. But he used his free will against God. And as a result of that, he was thrown out of the heavenly Eden. Eden was shut, as far as he was concerned. Let's just read on, verse 16. By the multitude of thy merchandise, that's his prosperity, or his, pros yes, his prosperity, the riches that he had, they have filled the midst of thee with violence, and thou hast sinned. Therefore I will cast thee as profane out of the mountain of God. I will destroy thee, O covering cherub, from the midst of the stones of fire. Thine heart was lifted up, because of thy beauty. Thou hast corrupted thy wisdom by reason of thy brightness. I will cast thee to the ground. And so it goes on. Now, having dealt with that on another tape, I'm not going to say any more. Satan, therefore, was in this heavenly Eden, but he sinned against God and was cast out. Once he was cast out, God created on this earth another Eden. And so we come through to Genesis chapter 2, where we get an earthly Eden with man created on the earth. So let's go back to Genesis 2, Genesis 2 and verse 8. Just going to uh, clear this up a bit. Now, some people, of course, have a good laugh at Genesis chapter 2, and they say, oh dear, oh dear, the Bible's got two creation accounts. Genesis 1 is one, Genesis 2 is another. That's nonsense. This is typical Hebrew form. In other words, in Genesis 1, the overall picture's given, and in Genesis 2, the writer, who was Moses, of course, goes back and fills in the detail of what actually happened. All right, in verse 8 of Genesis 2, we have mention of the earthly Eden. And the Lord God planted a garden eastward in Eden. Now, there was a land mass on the surface of the earth with the sea all the way around it, and somewhere in that was a district called Eden. It, Eden does not refer to it all. There was a district eastward which was called Eden. And there he put the man whom he had formed. Here is Adam put in the midst. And so the second one has Adam. And by the way, when Adam was created, he too was sinless. He was without sin. Right? Here's the picture. And he was created a little lower than the angels, lower than Satan, and put in this earthly Garden of Eden. Verse 9, And out of the ground made the Lord to grow every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life, there's the tree of life in the midst of the garden. The tree of life also in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge 
of good and evil. And here you've got two main trees, the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. We'll see them again in a moment. And a river. Isn't this odd? Remember Revelation 22, where we began with a river? Here you've got a river which flows out of Eden and goes on to water the whole earth from there. And a river went out of Eden to water the garden, and from thence it was parted and became into four heads. The name of the first is Pison, that is it which compasseth the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. Before we go on, may I just make a comment here. Some Americans have actually looked for this land of Havilah, where there is gold. <laughs> now, they're unlikely to find it, and I'll tell you why, because Noah's flood, which came, changed the whole land surface of the earth. This river system does not exist anymore, and this spread of land has been fundamentally altered since this time. So don't waste your time looking for Havilah, where there is gold. Verse 12, And the gold of that land is good. There is Delium and the Onyx Stone. And the name of the second river is Gion, the same it is that compasseth the whole land of Ethiopia. Forget present-day Ethiopia, this is referring to a different land. And the name of the third river is Hidekel, that is it which goeth towards the east of Assyria. And the fourth river is Euphrates. Now why is it, by the way, that today we have rivers? For example, Hidekel is the Tigris. Why is it that we have a land called Havilah, right, which is Yemen today? Why is it that we've got Ethiopia and a river called the Euphrates? The answer is that after Noah's flood, the people who came out of the ark immediately started calling the places they went to by the old names they'd had before the flood. That's all. It doesn't mean they were the same places or the same rivers. Fine. Verse 15, And the Lord God took the man and put him into the Garden of Eden to dress it and to keep it. And the man, Adam, had a job to do in Eden. He had to keep the garden. Verse 16, The Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden thou mayest freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil thou shalt not eat of it, for in the day that thou eatest thereof, dying thou shalt die. Why is it that here, in the midst of this garden, though Adam could eat of every other tree, why is it that there's one tree that he was not allowed to touch? The answer goes back again to free will. Adam, like Satan, had free will. Now, he was born sinless, but he had this free will. And what God wanted to know was, given time, would he use his free will totally for God? Every one of us in this room faces exactly the same challenge in our lives. And Jesus, you know, isn't taken in by little choruses, Oh, I love you, Lord. I love you, Lord. It's easy to sing those. Do you know what Jesus said? Jesus said, if you love me, why, there's an acid test you'll keep my commandments, won't you? And isn't it funny, the number of people that there are who try and love the Lord without obeying his commandments. They prefer love to be a sort of emotional, airy-fairy thing. But God's down to earth. And God says, no, if you really love me, then you'll do as I tell you to do. Now, that's exactly the principle found in the Garden of Eden. He said to Adam, well, Adam, you're sinless. You've got free will. I'm going to give you just one test of your free will. Don't eat of that tree. And so God knew instantly whether Adam was going for him or against him. And remember, Adam's free will had a positive pole which could go for God and a negative pole which could go against him. And what did Adam do? Having begun sinless, he then, like Satan before him, went negative. And once he'd, become, he'd gone negative, he became, of course, sinful and fallen. And so, the earthly Eden suddenly becomes a scene of man's failure. Satan, therefore, has failed. Adam has now failed on exactly the same test. And by the way, if you go over to Genesis 3, 23-24, now see how God reacts to it. Verse 22, The Lord God said, Behold, the man is become as one of us, to know good and evil. And now, lest he put forth his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. 
There's the statement. And do you see what this tree of life was for, by the way? It was to give eternal life to Adam and to Eve. It's the source of eternal life. It's a picture on the earth of, of course, the person of the Lord Jesus Christ who will provide eternal life. Now here is fallen man in the garden and God now has to make sure he doesn't get to the tree of life. How does he do it? He throws Adam and Eve out of the garden. And so in verse 23, Therefore the Lord God sent him forth from the garden of Eden to till the ground from whence he was taken. Now Adam could till all the rest of the earth, but the garden of Eden was completely closed to him. There was some form of barrier right the way round the garden of Eden. And in verse 24, so he drove out the man and he placed at the east of the Garden of Eden cherubim. You can't have cherubims, by the way. Cross off the, the S there. Cherubim is plural already. He placed cherubim and a flaming sword which turned every way to keep the way of the tree of life. Now, I wonder whether you've ever seen that before. What it meant is this. Before Noah's flood, there were angels at the gate of the Garden of Eden and there were the sword ready to kill anyone who tried to get into that garden. And this was one way that the gospel was preached, by the way, before the flood. Families would simply take their children up to the gate of the Garden of Eden and they'd say to them, the Garden of Eden is shut as far as we are concerned because of Adam's fall. And then they'd say, well, why is the angel carrying a sword? And the answer was that fallen man had to be judged and that if he dared to try to get into the presence of God in the Garden of Eden again, there would be death as far as he was concerned. This was a wonderful way to preach the gospel. You and I can sort of imagine picnics outside. It must have been the most wonderful spectacle. And there was this scene right up until Noah's flood. At Noah's flood, the flood water came and of course this was totally obliterated. So don't you dare join any expedition that's going out to look for the Garden of Eden. It's probably been washed to the bottom of the Indian Ocean by this time, you see? But there it is. This was the system. But do you see, man now excluded from the Garden of Eden. And because of Adam's failure, we then have to turn to Jesus. The moment Adam fell, Jesus had to come in Adam's place. And that's why he's called the last Adam. Now, what happened? Jesus now didn't go to Eden. Eden was closed as far as humanity was concerned. He came to sinful, fallen creation. He came among sinful men. He was born sinless. So Satan's been sinless. Adam's been sinless. Jesus was born sinless. But like Satan and like Adam, Jesus had free will. And it's that that explains a rather tricky verse in the book of Hebrews. A verse that's caused Christians a great deal of trouble. Turn with me please to Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 9 and verse 10. Hebrews 2, verse 9 and verse 10. And it's verse 10 that causes the problem. But we see, it says in Hebrews 2 verse 9, but we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels, so he was made lower than the fallen and the uh, elect angels, for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he by the grace of God should taste death for every man. Now look at verse 10. For it became him, or it was fitting for him, for whom are all things, and by whom are all things, in bringing many sons to glory, that includes us, by the way, in bringing us to glory, to make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. And that's the problem verse that's caught a lot of Christians out. Because this says that Jesus was made perfect. But hold on a minute, wasn't Jesus born perfect? Wasn't he born sinless? Yes, he was. But can you see what this verse means? He was born sinless, but with free will. And for 33 years of his life, Satan threw every temptation that was going at him. And Jesus, with his free will, 
had to choose for God in every single situation. Choose for his father. Satan failed at that point, so did Adam. You imagine the sufferings of Jesus. You see, we think of the sufferings of Jesus only in terms of the cross. Do you know, it lasted his whole life. There was never a day when he wasn't under test. Every single day, temptation was put before him and he had to positively choose for his father. And the good news for us is that where Satan failed, and where Adam failed, at the end of his life, Jesus had got through the test. That's what this means. He was made perfect. Of course he was born sinless. But through his sufferings, through the temptations that came his way, he was shown to be absolutely the lover of his Father in heaven. At the end he was able to say, Father, I have done your will entirely and to the letter. I love you indeed. That's why in Hebrews 4 we get a statement of that. Turn to Hebrews 4.15. And look what it says about Jesus. For we have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feelings of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. Hallelujah. And that means he's not a distant friend. He's a very close friend. He's able to say, I have been tempted in exactly the way you've been tempted, but I said yes to God and no to Satan and no to the sin. When Jesus then died on that cross, he was positively and totally without his own personal sin. He had no sin. This is what we call impeccability. And here's the marvellous thing. Because of that, he has thrown back the fall of Adam and the fall of Satan. He's thrown back all the curse. He's thrown back all of the results of the curse and he has opened Eden up to us again. That's the marvellous thing. And now, Jesus wasn't born into Eden, but he's going to spend the rest of his time in Eden. Eden has opened up because of the work of Jesus Christ. And that's why in Revelation 22, what do we get? We have a description of the New Jerusalem, but it's simply the Garden of Eden again on the earth. You have a river there. You've got the Tree of Life once again. Do you see, having begun with the failure, it's the only place that the book of Revelation could end as far as prophecy was concerned. It has to be a restatement of the aims of God. We will be with him face to face. And you'll notice in Revelation 22, there is no tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Why is that? Well, here's the marvellous thing. Every person who believes in the Lord Jesus Christ receives his righteousness. You don't have to be tempted again. You receive his righteousness automatically because he has, has been successful in this. And therefore, in that garden which is opened up now, which we have seen in Revelation 22, all you've got is the tree of life there, and the river that is flowing. And it celebrates the work of Christ. Do you know, as we saw last time, everything about the New Jerusalem shows something about the character of God. Every single thing there. And there on the new earth, in the New Jerusalem, there, first of all, is the Garden of Eden opened up again. There's the river of the water of life, salvation. And it's flowing forever and forever. What for? As a testimony of God's provision. God didn't just see man in his wretched fallen state, but he actually provided every step of the way. That river will flow forever and forever as a testimony to that fact. Why? The floodgates are open wide. That's what it's saying. And they always, always have been. Praise the name of Jesus. And why is the tree of life there? Why is it always fruiting? For the inhabitants of the city? No. But as a testimony that God has provided every step of the way and that people who have rejected Christ have not received of his bountiful provision. Why? It's a statement forever and forever of the character of God, his love, the fact he's never changing, the fact that he's truth, he's sovereign, these wonderful things. That is what the whole of the new creation is about. And that's what's stated on the earth. As we walk in Eden, probably Adam is going to be there as well. Isn't that wonderful? And I bet he's going to say, well, this is better than the first one. 
you know? Satan won't be there. Hallelujah. But there will be elect angels there, and they'll be able to tell us this is better than the angelic Eden as well. This is going to be the fullness and the completion of all of God's purposes. Do you see, therefore, that the Bible has to go out on that point? We're back in Eden, now a fulfilled Eden, where God and his creatures, his creation, can walk hand in hand and absolutely face to face. Now that's what's going to be on the new earth. It's a wonderful picture. All right, but what about the new heaven? How come nothing is said of the new heaven? Well, the new heaven uh, is going to exist. We don't know much about it, but we know one thing about it, and that is in the new heaven there is going to be a thing that we've called the lake of fire. And the lake of fire is going to burn forever and forever and forever. Do you remember who's going to be in the lake of fire? Satan's going to be in the lake of fire. The beast's going to be in the lake of fire. The false prophet, hell and death are going to be in the lake of fire, burning forever, and all unbelievers are going to be there. Not because God wants them there, but because they have rejected of the tree of life. They've rejected the salvation water that has flowed so freely from Jesus. No wonder Jesus said, Come unto me, you who are thirsty, a heavy laden, come to me. He said, All who are thirsty, come to me and drink wine out of your belly, your innermost being. Rivers of living water are going to start flowing. Marvellous. That's the salvation message. Up in the new heaven, the lake of fire will burn. And you might think, well, why? Well, as the new earth is a testimony to God's character, so is the lake of fire um, a testimony to God's character. The lake of fire stands for the fact that God is and always has been absolutely righteous. Absolutely righteous. And more than that, that he is and always have, has been absolutely just. Of course, we live in a day where people will emphasize the love of God. They'll always talk about the love of God. God is a God of love. How can a God of love do this? And how can a God of love do that? And they take one of his characteristics and they blow it up and forget all the others. God is a God of love. That's why Jesus was sent. If you refuse his love, there is nothing else. Because God is also a God of absolute righteousness and absolute justice. That means he can never overlook sin. Some Christians think that God can overlook sin. They think that when they receive forgiveness, God simply says, oh, I'll pretend it never happened. Justified, just as if I'd never sinned. That's nonsense. Every sin we have ever committed has offended God infinitely. And there's had to be an infinite payment for our sin. What is that infinite payment? He gave his own son to die on the cross for us. There's only one remedy for an infinite sin, and that is an infinite sacrifice. Jesus himself was the infinite sacrifice. Those of us who've believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, we find our sins are forgiven, and so we come to the new earth and we'll dwell forever face to face in the new Eden that's there. But those who reject Christ's infinite sacrifice, it means one thing, there has to be infinite punishment. And that is why these people will find themselves in the eternal lake of fire. The tragedy is, of course, that the way was open, that there was free provision in grace for them. Jesus himself had died. I want to say tonight, you know, that where, that your decision about Christ is vital because it determines where you will spend eternity. Those who've drunk of the water and eaten of the leaves of the tree and have received Christ as their Saviour, forever and forever they shall be face to face with the Lord. But for those who've rejected, you're standing on the basis of your own works. And they're not good enough. No matter how you cut it, they're not good enough. It's so vital to understand the issue. And you know, I think it's time that the issue was presented very clearly to people. Many people around us are going into the future with their eyes absolutely closed. It's time we told them the truth. And what is the truth? The truth is revealed in Revelation chapter 21 and Revelation 22. We have to make the issue absolutely clear. Can you see, therefore, why does it end in Revelation 22, 1 to 5, where it ends? 
It has to. Because this way, all the strands of God's purposes are brought back together. This way, Eden is opened up again, and the fullness of his creation dwells forever and forever before his eyes. That's why the Bible ends as far as prophecy is concerned, on that note. Oh yes, it would have been wonderful to end in the glories of the New Jerusalem. But really, we have to see it's the purpose of God, which is fulfilled, that really is the climax of history. And here is the climax of history, that there's going to be a river flowing forever. And the tree of life is going to be sprouting forever and forever as a testimony to God's eternal provision. There will be no night there. He will be the light forever and forever. We will be his servants and we will reign forever and forever, having the righteous robe of Christ all over us. All that remains, as far as this course is concerned, of course, is to read the conclusion to Revelation 22. But before we do, where do we stand tonight? This is future. Where do we stand tonight? The answer is, we stand at a moment of history which is vital. For Jesus Christ can come at any time. Sometimes we act as if we've got years ahead, you know? Sometimes we act as if we've got months ahead. Beloved, you could not only die tonight, Jesus Christ might return tonight. And won't that be a shock for those people who think we're going through the tribulation? Well, 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 well. And that's why the word rapture is so good. Pull them up by the grassroots even when they don't want to come. Hallelujah. We stand tonight on the very edge of God's eternal purpose. He can come at any time. We see the world scene set before us. Why? It could be tomorrow. It could be next week. It can be any time at all. And that's why the early church was told, expect the return of Christ imminently. And look for it every day. Lift up, your, lift up your eyes. See the clouds. Is there a cloud? There might Christ be on the cl cloud coming for his church. That's how we've got to live. And that's the only way, really, that will make sure that we burn up for Christ in the few remaining days that we've got. Our lives are but a mist. They pass. They're gone. He is no fool who uses every ounce of life for Jesus Christ. Why? What does it matter what's going to happen to you? What does it matter what is going to happen in the future? Now you've got to live, giving everything to Christ, for his return could be at any moment. And there are going to be people who may die or find themselves caught out. They wanted to live for Christ later on. They wanted to enjoy themselves first. Rather like the person, of course, who said, Lord, make me a saint, but not yet. Let me enjoy myself first. Oh fool, because the day is coming when every person is going to give an account of how they've used their lives. Jesus could come any time. So let us live as if he's coming tomorrow. Praise God. That's the way that the Christian life ought to be lived. Let's just read then Revelation 22, verse 6 and onwards. And he said unto me, These sayings are faithful and true. The whole book of Revelation is faithful and true. It's going to come to pass. And the Lord God of the holy prophets sent his angel to show unto his servants the things which must shortly be done. Ble Behold, I come quickly. Blessed is he that keepeth the sayings of the prophecy of this book. Those who believe them those who see what God is saying and those who take them to heart. And I, John, saw these things and heard them. It's his personal testimony. I didn't make these things up. I actually saw them with my eyes. And when I'd heard and seen, I fell down to worship before the feet of the angel which showed me these things. And of course, there's one thing you shouldn't do is worship an angel. And so he's rebuked for it. Verse 9. Then saith he unto me, See thou do it not. For I am, I am thy fellow servant, and of thy brethren the prophets, and of them which keep the sayings of this book, worship God. And he saith unto me, seal not the sayings of this book. Seal them means to make them secret. In other words, leave them open as they are, so that everyone can understand them. Isn't that amazing? Praise the Lord. Seal them not, for the time is at hand. And verse 11 is a very interesting verse. And it's written to people 
according to their attitude to these things. It says, he that is unjust, let him be unjust still. He that is filthy, let him be filthy still. In other words, if you've rejected the message of Christ, why, there is no other message. If you've rejected the truth of these things, there's nothing else. You may as well carry on as you're going, because there's nothing that can save you. So you remain in status quo. That's what he says. And it's a warning that this really is the last word. And what he's saying is here, don't turn to TM. Don't turn to EST. Don't turn to all these other cults. Don't turn to Buddhism. No, if you can't accept these words, there is nothing that you can do except what is said in the book of Ecclesiastes. Eat, drink and be merry, for tomorrow you die. That's what it says. But, for those who've received the word, let him that is righteous, as we are, let him be righteous still. And he that is holy, let him be holy still. And behold, I come quickly, says the Lord, and my reward is with me to give to every man according as his work shall be. I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. Blessed are they that do his commandments, that they may have right to the tree of life and may enter in through the gates into the city. And what is his commandment? Why, it's given in 1 John. Believing on the Lord Jesus Christ. That's it. At the moment you do it, you have access to the tree of life and so eternal life becomes yours. For outside are dogs. There's not the animals, by the way. These are unbelievers. Outside are the dogs and the sorcerers and the whoremongers and the murderers and the idolaters and whosoever loveth and maketh a lie. I, Jesus, have sent mine angel to testify unto you these things in the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David, the bright and morning star, this, therefore, is the last sermon that Jesus ever preached. That's why we must realize this is on the level of the Gospels, as far as we are concerned. You cannot believe the Gospels and reject the book of Revelation. All are the words of Jesus Christ. And the Spirit and the Bride say, Come. Amen. And let him that heareth say, Come. And let him that is a first, Come. And whosoever will, let him take the waters of life freely, which is an evangelistic message right at the end of the book of, of Revelation. For I testify unto every man that heareth the words of the prophecy of this book, if any man shall add unto these things, this is, these are unbelievers, God shall add unto him the plagues that are written in this book. In other words, you've got to go through the tribulation. If you're an unbeliever, you're going to go through all the things that are described here. By the way, if you're a believer, you're not going to go through them. Verse 19, And if any man shall take away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God shall take away his part out of the book of life. This, this is an unbeliever again. And out of the holy city, and from the things which are written in this book, he which testifieth these things saith, Surely I come quickly. Amen. And John says, Even so, come. Lord Jesus. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and I would add in the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.